Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. This month, Ann Garten welcomes the founder and the executive director of the Narrative Initiative, a storytelling platform aimed at improving communication between patients and those who provide care. Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care. I'm Ann Garten, your host, and I am extremely excited to share with you two lovely souls from the Narrative Initiative, uh, Dr. Lorraine Dickey and Vivian Folk. And I'm going to take a moment and let you guys introduce yourself. How about we start with you, Dr. Dickey? Hi. Well, we are just uh, beyond uh, happy to be here, Ann. Uh, you know, we all met um, in Orlando a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, and just haven't been able to get out here to see you. So it's a glorious day. It's beautiful out here. We're happy to be here. Um, Yeah, um, I am uh, Lorraine Dickey. I've been a physician for about uh, 30 years in the ICU. And Vivian and I run a little company called the Narrative Initiative. And we are trying to positively transform the experience of healthcare for those who choose to give care and those who, quite frankly, don't have a lot of option other than to receive care. And we do a lot of this by talking about the word care and perceptions around that using story. Excellent. Vivian. Hi, I'm Vivian Folk. I'm the executive director for the Narrative Initiative, um, and I help Lorraine, Dr. Dickey, um, transform care in healthcare, uh, primarily helping nurses, since uh, my background is 30 years as a registered nurse, primarily in maternal child medicine. Um, but yeah, uh, we do a lot of good work through um, stories and communication and listening skills with uh, health care providers. Excellent. And I think I want to preface this in this conversation that this um, initiative could be used beyond health and human services because right now we recognize that we all have lived through trauma because of the pandemic, right? And, um, you know, we all started in health and human services. We started at the beginning and we were all heroes. You know, everybody wanted to yep. celebrate us. And, and then there was this honeymoon phase, right? And, and we went through that phase. And um, then this disillusionment. And I think we're a little bit there, uh, depending on where you are in the country, a little bit there or a little bit through that reconstruction phase and somewhat in between both. Right. And and so we have to recognize that. And that doesn't mean just for health and human services. That is the community, the population, all all of that. And we know that um, that role of uncertainty that happens during a pandemic creates trauma. And how do we work together through that? And and I loved uh, the session that I met with you all in in Orlando and recognized pre pandemic that A lot of our organizations dealt with uh, units or teams that needed assistance, and now we all need that, right? And and I wonder if you could share a little bit of what actions and what what your program is so that we can walk our listeners through that and and how uh, those initiatives, based on evidence, is, is being successful, right? Absolutely. Wow. And um, uh, thank you for that opening. Um, I would have to say that probably the most profound work we have done uh, since about uh, January, February 2020 has been our narrative COVID-19 initiative with frontline um, healthcare providers, both in person and virtually. And, you know, 
uh, Vivian can talk to this a little bit more from the nursing standpoint, but quite frankly, we are hearing so many stories of people who need to decompress, people who are carrying rocks in their backpacks well before the um, pandemic was here. And, and you know, it's not like uh, the pandemic started and all of a sudden somebody came by and magically put five new coping mechanisms in my back pocket. You kind of went in with what you had. And if you had good coping mechanisms, you're surviving. Um, if you're not, you're probably well beyond your means of resilience. And it's interesting how you say, you know, initially we were heroes. You know, and, and I, I've had our uh, the nursing staff I work with in Montana actually say, you know, yeah, for the first one we were there, no, no doubt. And the second one we rallied. But now, quite frankly, we're tired. And we've got all these stories of heartbreak and watching people die. Um, and trying to figure out uh, how to get away from it because you can't. It's in your personal life and your professional life. And so, you know, there's a new term I've sort of heard. It's called emotional PPE, you know, the protective, PPE. yeah, PPE. And that's sort of what we have come to think of our, our what we call our write, read, reflect narrative exchange model. That's the model that we've been using in, in you know, proving through data that since 2006 really has a strong impact on improving resilience, wellness, but in particular, uh, the way people listen to each other. And, and one of the things that you have to, we all, I think, have to realize is um, in the whole person-centered care model, the term care is very qualitative. It means different things to different people. And through the pandemic and the trauma that you're talking about, you know, trauma means different things to different people. And there has to be some kind of safe, structured space um, to sort of tell these tough stories. And honestly, there's also some very uplifting and um, heartwarming stories that we hear, which you need to tell them in audiences that sort of get you and feel safe, right? I do think that. And I think the piece that we have to remember is a lot of us were trained. Are we allowed to show our fear and our own anxiety, right? And, and amongst our co-workers or even amongst our, our patients. And then even then, when we look at those who are leaders, are they really allowed? So we need to give some of that permission to give a safe space to do that, in, in, in my opinion, so that we can move forward in our healing and create the resilience you talk about, right? And the sustainability is the other piece because this isn't gonna go away mm -hmm. for a, a, a long time. Exactly, in fact, I think it's here to stay. Yes. And a lot of it is how are we going to live with it and cope with it? And I think it's just honestly highlighting a lot of the things that we've been dealing with for a long time Yes. that we just really haven't. The whole issues of compassion fatigue, you know, where uh, organizations haven't really had the, uh, the capacity or really uh, probably the motivation to really begin to dig in um, and try to do some preventative work around compassion fatigue before we have to do the reactive work of trying to help people off the edge of, of burnout and all the other horrible things that happen when you've just quite frankly had enough. Well, human response is a natural response is to ignore it or run away from it. Right. And we through your initiative here, one of the things we're suggesting is take the elephant out of the room. Like, let's put it on the table and, and have the conversation. You know, Vivian, you and I were in, in school at a time that that was not allowed. No. Right. We were we were supposed to be those strong people at the at the bedside and not allowed to have those emotions or those conversations, even amongst ourselves. And and so I think moving forward, how do we give those tools? 
to our students. Let's start there because if we start th there in, in that piece for uh, those that are in health and human services, then they're gonna, they're, they can help change some of that culture you know, with us, alongside us, as I tell my students. And then, but also giving those safe spaces within the organizations to also work through that. Would you agree? I do agree. And not only just in organizations, just telling those stories with liked peers. We've been doing this pre-COVID and the nurses or healthcare workers needed that safe space to tell their stories, talk about what's going on with people who get them. COVID time, they really need yeah. people to tell their stories and show their emotions with like peers and a safe, safe, safe space, space, just like you said. Right. Yes, I'm a nurse for 30 some years and those nurses who cried at the bedside were shooed away. You need to find somewhere else to work. Where now we're encouraging to share those stories, get that rock out of your backpack because it just, just weighs you down, weighs you down. Find meaning in the journey. Find <laughs> really? Find meaning in the journey. And Correct. if I can add one more thing to that, you know, Vivian has done some really excellent work with her students when she worked at DeSales University. But I want to step back a minute um, just a little bit and talk about this from an interdisciplinary standpoint and the really importance of breaking down hierarchy. I think it's so important to realize, especially in these COVID days, that COVID is here, whether you're in the grocery store, whether you're at home, whether it's with your kids or whether you're at work, you're not going to get away from it. So we all have human experiences. It doesn't have to be just uh, in your medical profession. Um, or in your student life where you have these experiences. And we know from experience, from a patient safety standpoint, from a person-centered care standpoint, we know that hierarchy comp can very well compromise care and the person-centered care delivery and can actually lead to a lot of medical errors. So what we're trying to do is to get people to put down some of that armor, put down some of that hierarchy, and have a conversation as human beings who happen to be all in healthcare that's why you get a seat at the table. That's why your stories are understood and you're automatically in an area of safety. Um, and I think we've had a lot of success with interdisciplinary formats in not just um, the clinical realm, but also working with students. We work with um, um, graduate medical students over at uh, St. Luke's University Health Network in uh, Pennsylvania and have had, uh, had great success for three years there now doing that. Collective care. Collective, collective care, care right I, collective I, care I, I think we have to recognize that we have to care for ourselves and our team to be able to best care for those we care for in the community no matter what we do you know i we could say that for daycare providers and and for school teachers and all of uh, anybody in the in the community as a whole if we don't collectively care for one another and i think that's important to pull in is we we talked earlier this um, month for this podcast release it's going to be the month for kindness right you want to talk a little bit about that and, and pull in how how that is impactful as well oh my gosh you're, you're right up my alley here <laughs> i'm gonna have to be careful not to talk for 30 minutes on this topic um yes you know um and i think i told you uh uh, uh a while back after, when we first met that I have a real passion for the work that we're doing because I'm a patient in the healthcare system as well as a professional um, for in it for 30 years. I had a horrendous ski accident that just about killed me and, and took me out of practice for almost three years. Getting back into healthcare, uh, once I did get back in, I learned that you know people come to healthcare because they're suffering and they need care. And one of the, and care is a qualitative term, but 
what they really want is to be treated with kindness. And again, kindness is a qualitative term. November 13th is actually International Kindness Day, and we are involved with something called the Gathering of Kindness, um, which actually originated in Australia, but we, we host the Gathering of Kindness USA. And that's where we try to bring healthcare community members together, uh, I'm sorry, healthcare and community members together to talk about some of the challenges to why it's hard to be kind, either when you give healthcare or when, while you're receiving healthcare. Um, and we can actually teach the fundamentals of kindness so that people walk away learning that that is important. So it's this qualitative aspect of care that I think we lose as we go through the student world. Uh, we're so highly technically we we try to become so technically competent right Right. that we sometimes forget these qualitative things and then we have to either come back and learn them or unfortunately sometimes you know you have to fall off a mountain to learn them Uh, like in my case i had to sort of come back around so i think kindness is essential to person-centered care kindness is essential to feeling cared for and kindness is essential to um um giving someone the time and space to tell a story, you know, and uh, we, we have our Write, Read, Reflect tool, which is only a three-minute tool that we can give to people. Um, it's a very actionable tool, but it can actually promote the use of conscious kindness um, and how to be perceived as being kind, not just feeling you're kind and getting rejected. I think that's really important to pull through because some of our listeners are going to be like, well, either you're kind or you're not, mm-hmm. right? And I can do some types of tasks or behaviors or s- statements that I think are very kind, mm-hmm. but not necessarily received in that manner, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So I think we have to recognize, and, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, how do you use your words? How do you not even use your words how do you listen, mm-hmm. right? We don't get taught how to listen. And that is so important in this journey so that then whether it is my teammate on the, on the unit or my patient or the family, right? Mm-hmm. In understanding their needs, their values, the, the cultural empathy that I may need to pull in, all of those pieces of those puzzles, I have to have those competencies to be able to be kind and to be received as kind. Correct. Kindness is perception driven. So Lorraine talks about a story about opening a door for somebody in a wheelchair. That's kind. But that person may not perceive that as kind if he's trying to figure out how to use that wheelchair. And then you sit back and say, well, I was kind. Why wasn't it a kind act in his eyes? So that's a very good teaching tool that we teach in the narrative initiative but you're absolutely right on it's perception driven i recently had this conversation with my nursing students and and when i had them i asked them and i don't have them in clinical with me this i do actually they're in the community clinical but not in the acute care clinical and i asked them about their acute care um uh day and said how many of you asked the patient what their goal was for the day and and that's part of being kind because I may have this goal, but the patient is just happy to get out of bed right. or put a fork of food in their mouth or get some sleep, right? And if I don't understand where they're coming from, then the day is shot. 
everything that we're driving forward to will never get to because their perception is going to be much different. And one other thing from a patient standpoint, um, if I can interject, um, you know, patients really need to somehow uh, have a link to uh, feeling respected and having their dignity upheld. And asking them before actually doing for them is a huge way to build trust between the both of you um, and to elevate their own personal dignity. And that's huge when the situation when you're grasping for any type of control you can, because that's one of the biggest things that we give up as patients when we walk into a healthcare center is control. Mm -hmm. And how can we be kind um, in ways that allow people to hold on to that, what they consider to be a shred of dignity. It really takes a nanosecond of mindfulness, though, to step back and, and, and be a, a self-aware enough to say, well, maybe I should ask before I do that. Indeed. And I think we forget that. That's hard as nurses. Yes. We are driven to do things in order. Um, so I've had to learn that myself mm -hmm. in my senior year to give that nanosecond to patients and families and say it's not all about the things that need to be done, A, B, C, D. Right. It's 24-hour care for a it reason is. in the acute care center, right? Yes. And on the, on the community side, it's a, it's a little different, but we right. can still pull these perspectives into, into that and those competencies into that. And I, I wanted to also remind us, too, that um, we strip them of everything. I mean, he, here's your gown, right? Take everything off and put this on, and then let me do everything I want to do to you. Right. Not necessarily with you or for you. It's to you, right? And And that is not kind. So how do we change that verbiage and our tasks list, right, in, right. in, in allowing them to have some of that, that drive and that dignity and, and work together in solidarity with that patient to get them to their highest level of health and wellness? Sometimes it's just being there for that patient. Lorraine tells a story, which I won't share on air, about <laughs> taking a shower um, when you're at your low, low, um, just to be kind, just to be there. It doesn't have to be words. Right. It could be actions. Correct. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. sitting, I have, a, I have a friend who is going through some major cancer issues at the moment, and um, she's in Pittsburgh. And I just texted her and said, I will gladly FaceTime you and we don't have to talk. I will just be there with you if you want someone to be there with you. Because of the pandemic, they're not allowing visitors to the extent and, and things like that, right? So I think that's really important to recognize that it doesn't have to be a task. Yeah, and you know, I'm a huge proponent of nursing, probably, um, at least I've been told by some nurses, I'm a, yes, um, a little are. bit of an unicorn in that area, but I truly, truly believe that that care occurs in, the, in the, the nursing patient relationship, and that's critical to healing. You know, when we've talked to nurses and I, and I say, you know, uh, do you guys think there is value in bearing witness? Yes. And, you know, I think I it wasn't until my hospice and palliative care training um, that I really understood that healing and person-centered care can occur in that space. It doesn't have to be um, a technical intervention. It doesn't have to be an action. Bearing witness it can not only be kind, it can be healing. And it certainly is person-centered. Um, I think when, and I can speak for physicians on this end, we tend to get married to outcomes. And so do we, you know, and, and to me, that is that's good and bad. I mean, I understand we're measured on outcomes. But quite frankly, you know, when I look back at myself and my career and my daily activities as a physician, 
I have to be really honest and say there's not a lot I have control over. I think I have a lot more control over these outcomes than I do, but honestly, I don't. And there's a lot more value in healing not only myself and not only making my practice of being in medicine feel better, but also giving care better, if I can just be married to the process and not so much married to that outcome. So if you go in and, and action by action, if it takes these nanoseconds of kindness, or if it takes listening to these stories as you guys have talked about, then I think that we ought to be able to walk away and say we did a good job. Yeah, I like, but I just want to interject on yeah. when you yeah. say about process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn, and I've learned this through, mm -hmm. you know, Lorraine and this process not to be married to the outcome. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's very difficult for nurses, particularly where I work, mm -hmm. because if that outcome doesn't turn out the way I think it should turn out, I blame myself. Right. And right. I know those nurses do. So I try to teach the new nursing students or the newer staff, if you did a good job or you're pleased with your process, you can't control that outcome, just mm -hmm. like Dr. Dickey was saying. Correct. Um, but ultimately, the outcome is going to be the outcome. Correct. So to focus on the process, and that has helped them mm -hmm. um, get through it, and it helps them. Um, I'm going to throw kindness in there, being kind to themselves. Right. Because right. they're so hard on themselves. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I wonder if you both want to share just a little bit about what the narrative initiative, the, the, the yeah, that process is for, for our listeners, just to give them a snapshot um, and, and what outcomes you're seeing uh, in the organizations that you are using this in. I guess I'll take that one. You take that one. I guess I'm the researcher. Um, <laughs> You're the scientist. Yeah, yeah you know, we, uh, this was actually, we did, we have a, um, a write, read, reflect uh, narrative process. And this was actually developed from a clinical need to um, improve patient-centered care when I was the uh, medical director in chief of our NICU. And the concept here is to allow people to do, uh, to write for a short period of time. We use three minutes, a kind of a nice easy in, write your way through, write your way out. And then we have a process where you actually read that verbatim without paraphrasing before. And then paying attention to those, especially the qualitative language. And what we have is we then have facilitators that listen to these stories, pull out some of these words, and reflect them back to find out, you know, what did you really mean? Now, we call this athletic listening because it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the better you get. And we have also found that it's efficient. And I know you were talking a moment ago about... Um, you know, anxiety ramps up when you have lots of things to get done. So one of the ideas is this is a simple tool that if you can learn to listen to someone from a qualitative standpoint, dig down on a word, it does a number of different things. One, it's highly efficient and effective at getting to the heart of the conversation. Um, if someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, my toe is broken um, and I'm very frustrated with what, you know, with my care. It's very easy to then the next thing to ask is, well, what is your pain level on a scale of one to 10? So we're looking for quantitative measures. And if you would simply say, I know what frustrated means to me. What does frustrated mean to you in this circumstance? And they'll go, well, you know, geez, I can't walk my dog. I can't make my, I can't drive to work. So it's actually what they're telling you, it's affecting their activities of daily living. The suffering that they're coming to you for is to help get their activities of daily living back in. It happens to be in their toe. Right. 
But this is the major problem. So then you can then go efficiently down that discussion of how do we get you back. And again, it's a bit about being kind because it opens the conversation for them to tell you what they need, which is important. That when you reflect someone's language back to them, a couple of things happen that are really cool. One, you talked about learning to listen. This is about being heard. You inherently feel heard when someone uses your own cultural qualitative language back to you. That then establishes respect. That then establishes trust. And it's really important to realize when two people come together, a relationship is made. In healthcare, when there's a provider of any nature and a patient of any nature coming together, the providing side, the healthcare side, brings um, technical competence and knowledge, but the patient side brings trust. And you simply cannot get anywhere without trust. So this is a quick way in. It's efficient. It helps you listen. It develops respect and trust. Some of our quantitative outcomes, so to speak, yeah. We have, um, you know, we have multiple studies that have shown this improves people's ability to listen without judgment. They can use it right away. They can use it on their husbands. They can use it on their wives. They can use it on their colleagues. People love to use it on their kids. Um, It has the side benefit of increasing feelings of wellness, feelings of resilience. Many people said, say, tell us it feels very supportive and it feels very therapeutic. It's very validative. Those are terms that I had never thought would come up when I started doing research in order to get patient-centered care and care in general more streamlined in my NICU. I, long answer to your yeah, very no, valued question. No, you were going to add to no, it, no, I think. She, she's, mm-hmm. she's right on, yeah. on so, everything qualitative. Yeah. I, I, just for our listeners, I've not um, been trained as a facilitator, but have used some of these types of tools with my students, my patients, and my teammates, you know, my department. And it's amazing how the conversation changes when you have these competencies to be able to use and bring the team together. And, and overall, then we feel more satisfied. We heard listened to, right? And we're able then to get to that common goal uh, together quicker, mm-hmm. which in the big scheme of things, if we're talking about patient care, then we're getting them healthier and, and discharged and home or wherever they're going from their uh, <clears throat> in a way that uh, improves their, may, hopefully their outcomes as, uh, and, and their satisfaction and our satisfaction. And, and it worked this week, we used it a little bit with our level three nursing students, and hopefully we'll see some great outcomes in, in that. So I think that's great. I think you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hope so. This morning, I just want to mm-hmm. add, when we did our session, some of the comments that came up, um, which we sort of laughed over, but it's true. It's just shut up and listen. Yeah. <laughs> shut up and listen. Right. Um, and not to use those terms, but, yeah. um, and I know that sounds brass, or I'm going to use this on my husband. Right. Because I don't listen. I take the time to listen. Mm-hmm. Or our kids, mm-hmm. or with patients and families. Right. We have found it does, it does make not only professionals feel like they're better teammates and they can deliver better care, but it also, we've shown it, um, uh, in this um, improves HCAP scores, Correct. improves patient satisfaction scores, actually, um, in um, inpatient units. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Any last words? If you can be anything, be kind. I'd have to go on those lines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, big thing is take the time to listen. 
Yep, don't worry about your tasks, especially for the nurses. Um, take the time, 30 seconds, to listen to that patient and pick out those words. In the long run, it's actually going to be beneficial. Excellent advice. Thank you both for joining us, and thanks for listening to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast. Audio production for the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is provided by KALA-FM Studios in Davenport, Iowa. This show is engineered by Dave Baker and is edited by Shelby Lebo. It is produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University.